Okay, good morning, brothers and sisters. Happy spring to you. It's a great day to be together in the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day. Amen. Take your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. I see some new faces. If you're new, I'm Steve, and uh, this is New Life Church. We're all about Jesus here. We love the Word of God. Our pledge to you is that every week when you come, you'll hear God's Word and you'll hear about Jesus. I want to read his word for us this morning, and then I'll, I'll say a prayer that the Lord will speak to us. So Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, there's also a study guide in your worship folder that you can pull out, and that way you can follow along with us. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Father God, as always, we look now to your Holy Spirit, whom you have given us to be our resident truth teacher, and we pray, Spirit of God, that you would take the words off the page, lift them off the page, and embed them deep into our own hearts today from this rich and weighty and meaty passage of your word. In so doing, I pray that you would change us a little bit more into the image of Christ today. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you were raised like in a religious environment in, in church. Can I see your hands? All right, lots and lots and lots of us. Well, this message today carries great significance for you especially, I would say. And the way I want to start is to ask all of us to do a little self-assessment right now. So just take a moment and ponder your answers to these questions. Do you think that you'll make it to heaven because you consider yourself to be a pretty good person? Do you think that you'll gain eternal life because you go to church? Did you grow up under graceless, legalistic teaching? Were you raised in a home where the focus was on behaving well to the neglect of the attitude of your heart? Are you raising your own children that way? Do you find yourself constantly comparing yourself with other people in order to feel good about how religious you are? Do you tend to measure how close you are to God by how consistent you are in doing spiritual activities? Do you find it difficult or even unappealing to open up your heart to God and worship Him with abandon? 
if you answered yes to any of those questions, I want to say two things to you today. Number one, I'm so glad that you're here. And two, you may need to lose your religion so that you can gain a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Today could be your day to experience a mind shift so profound that it'll change your life both now and forever. I can put today's sermon into one short sentence. Here it is. Jesus is better than religion. Would you say that with me? Jesus is better than religion. Yes, he is. Way better. Lots better than religion. Now, that statement may be confusing to some of you because in your mind, Jesus and religion are the same, like Jesus is religion. And I will concede that, technically speaking, Christianity is classified as a religion in the sense that it holds to the belief in a supreme being, in a deity. But the problem is that Christianity usually gets grouped in together with all the other religions that also believe in some sort of deity. And so when you see a listing of world religions, Christianity is just one of many options on the list as if they were all pretty similar, and they're not. They're not. Christianity stands in stark contrast to every other religion in the world. I'll explain that more in a few moments. It's different fundamentally and categorically different at its core. And so that's why so many of us want to make a distinction between Christianity and religion. And I'll say it again, Jesus is better than religion. He really is. Well, if you are new here, we are studying together the New Testament book, the letter to the Philippians. And the man who wrote this letter, Paul, had at one point been a very religious man. But here in this section of chapter 3, he is seriously pushing back against religion and against people trying to be more religious. And what he does is he gives a strong warning first, and then he follows it up with a Strong challenge as well. So first, the warning, point number one, if you are a true Christian, watch out for those people who want to drag you back under religion, under the yoke of religion. Verse one, finally, my brothers. Sounds like he's getting ready to finish up his letter, kind of like some preachers do. He goes on and on for a while. <laughs> finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. So he's saying, I've, I've mentioned this to you before. I want to reinforce something I've already said, a, a caution that I've given you. Watch out, verse 2, for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. So do you hear the warning? Watch out. Watch out for these guys. And you say, what's he talking about? To understand this, we need to realize that everywhere that Paul went preaching the gospel and starting churches... After he left town, other guys would come in behind him and would seek to pull all those new Christians back under the Jewish religion called Judaism and away from the gospel of grace. Those guys who did that are often referred to as Judaizers, Judaizers, and they would show up at Christian worship gatherings like this or in home groups and they would say things like, hey, Believing in Jesus, that is all well and good, but you know, to be truly right with God, you need to also be circumcised and keep all the laws of Moses like the Jews do. 
In other words, they preach that you were saved by believing in Jesus plus acting Jewish. Now, we don't have a lot of Judaizers around here today, but believe me, this notion of needing Jesus plus something else is as current as any TV talk show or lunchroom conversation at your office. You know, Paul, we've learned about this guy, he always got fired up when people started messing around with the gospel of grace, didn't he? To quote Jay, that really fried his bacon when people did that. Got him fired up when they contaminated the gospel of grace by adding to it human elements. So he uses some pretty harsh language here. He calls these guys dogs. He's not talking about the furry little house pets that you love. He's talking about the mangy mutts that were roaming around the town in those days, foraging and scavenging in the trash piles. He calls them evildoers, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is a reference to their misuse and misrepresentation of the practice of circumcision. So he says to this congregation, watch out for those guys and resist being drawn back into a performance-based religious system that in effect reduces the value of what Jesus did on the cross. In Paul's mind, the only true salvation equation was this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Or as the reformers would have said it, true salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, here in verse 3, we find one of the many descriptions in the Bible of a Christian. Paul mentions four, uses four phrases to, to identify four marks of a Christian. First he says, we are the circumcision. In other words... Yes, I'm sure those Judaizers do bear the mark of God's covenant people, circumcision, which God first commanded way back with Abraham. But theirs is only a a physical, external, bodily circumcision. They're missing the point of it, the symbolism of it. We who know Christ, we know that God has actually performed spiritual surgery on our hearts, cutting away the sin that enslaved us and made us into idolaters. We who know Christ are actually the true covenant people of God. You know, many people believe that the New Testament equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament in in terms of symbolizing our special relation to God is baptism. Water baptism, which marks a person as a believer in Christ and signifies that they've been included in the family of God. So, Old Covenant, circumcision. New Covenant, baptism. I really like the New Covenant better, don't you? Especially for adult converts. Yes. (laughs) Praise God for the New Covenant. Even today we'll be celebrating those who are being baptized here this weekend as that identifying badge or mark, yes, I'm one of Christ's, I belong to Him. We are the true circumcision. Second, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God. In contrast to these Judaizers who didn't have the Holy Spirit, the true Christian has a heart that's come alive and that's inflamed with passion for God produced by the Holy Spirit in us. And Jesus said that passion is like a fountain springing up from our hearts in expressions of praise to God. Amen? That's why we worship the Lord when we come together. That's the Holy Spirit in us doing that. Thirdly, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. 
That means Christians, unlike other people, boast not in ourselves and what we've done, but we boast for glory in Jesus and in what he has done. Amen? And then it says we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. That's a phrase that's unique to Paul. In his way of thinking, to, to put confidence in the flesh is to place your faith in your own human efforts and advantages and achievements in order to gain favor with God. And that's what these Judaizers were doing. It's what they were promoting. But Paul here says the opposite. True believers put what? No confidence in humanity's best efforts to reach up to God because they know that only Christ's work is accepted by the Father in heaven. So if you're a genuine Christian here today, Paul is here describing you. Your faith is not in what you've done, but in what Christ has done for you. You have the Spirit of God in you, and He fills your heart with joy and prompts you to worship Jesus with your lips and with your life. And he's saying, look, don't allow slick people, don't allow persuasive people, or even your own family members, to drag you back into performance-based religion. Because we live on this side of it is finished. Amen? This side of that. What Jesus did was enough for God, so never forget that. Never forget that. It's interesting, I talked recent, recently with some of you in our church who are recovering from that kind of a strict, stifling, religious background and upbringing. And some of you have told me that you're being persecuted, in a sense, by your family members because you've left behind their version of legalistic religion. It seems like they want you to feel ashamed that you don't believe anymore the way they believe or the way you were raised. Now I say, praise God. And I think Paul would say that to you as well. If you allow yourself to get dragged back into that again, you'll end up forfeiting the joy that you have in Christ. Count on it. Now, you don't have to be all mad and angry and upset with your family. Love them, right? Treat them with respect and honor. Pray for them. But don't let yourself get pulled back into religion. Jesus is better than religion. He's better than religion. Now, when Paul reminds the Philippians here that true Christians are those who put no confidence in the flesh, he knew that those Judaizers would hear about that and they would seize on it and they would push back and they would say, well, the reason that Paul is saying that is because he doesn't have anything to put confidence in. Of course he's going to advocate for Jesus plus nothing because he's got nothing to impress God with. So anticipating that response, Paul says, verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. And he goes on, and, and really what he does is he kind of details out his own religious credentials, his own religious resume. And the truth is, by human standards, it was pretty impressive. The Judaizers in Philippi evidently didn't know all this about Paul. They would have been surprised to hear it. But Paul is basically saying this. Look, you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me on religious credentials? Fine. Just realize you might not match up as good as you think you do with me. He points to two kinds of personal credentials. The first we could call inherited advantages. 
Basically, the stuff he got, the good stuff he got just from being born in the family he was born into and having the parents that he had. He realized, you know, there's some things I didn't work for. They just came to me from being in the family that I was in. But then added to that were his own personal religious accomplishments, stuff that by his own effort and hard work and perseverance and focus and determination, he achieved. So why does Paul do this? Well, here's the point I think he was making. I think he was saying this, look, you guys, I'm not preaching the gospel of grace because I have no religious accomplishments of my own to speak of. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody with a religious resume that's on par with mine. My parents were both Jewish. They had me circumcised eight days after my birth in accordance with God's command. So I bear the mark of God's covenant people from infancy, not like some of you who were proselytized later in life. Ouch. Plus, he says, I went on Ancestry.com and traced my family tree back to my great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob, whose grandfather was Abraham. And he says, you know what? I'm as true-blooded a pure Israelite as you're going to find. And he says, I'm also from one of the most elite tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, one of two elite tribes, along with Judah. Some of you Judaizers don't even know your tribe. Plus, as a young man, I capitalized on all those advantages that were given to me, and I added some pretty impressive achievements of my own. Like what, Paul? Well, like becoming a Pharisee. We, we know about these guys, right? These guys were like practicing religion on steroids. I mean, they were the hyper-uber religious people of their day. There was about 6,000 of them in the day that Paul lived in. And Paul said, I became a Pharisee. I worked and studied and learned, and I was one of the best Pharisees you'd find. If you want to talk about passion and religious devotion and zeal and fervor, just keep this in mind. I was so zealous for God that when a small offshoot of Judaism called Christianity started to kick up its heels in Palestine, I was so committed to keeping Judaism pure that I went after those people, tracked them down, and threw them in prison. That's how fervent I was in my religious devotion. If you want to talk about law-keeping, I did that too. Ask anybody. To the very best of my ability, I always strove to keep God's holy law and on those rare occasions when I failed to do so, I always brought the appropriate sacrifice to the temple to cover and atone for my sins. As a young man and on up into my 30s, I was a hyper-conscientious keeper of the law of God, and no one who knew me at the time would deny that. So I think basically he was saying, fellas, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I was more religious than any of you Judaizers. But listen, verse 7 is the key. Verse 7 is what Paul hoped would stun those Judaizers into silence. Verse 7 is how Paul wants his beloved, beloved Philippians to understand true conversion. Verse 7 is the mind shift that Paul experienced and deeply wanted other people to experience. Verse 7 describes repentance. Verse 7 tells us what was going on in, inside Paul's mind when on the outside he was laying flat on his back, knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. Here it is, ready? The mind shift verse of the week, Philippians 3, 
7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Would you say that with me? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 7 is about losing your religion in order to gain a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, are there any uh, accountants or bookkeepers in the room today? Would you raise your hands? Accountants, bookkeepers. All right. You know what? Praise God, this is your moment right now. Vindication is finally here. After years of absorbing all of those derogatory comments about being bean counters and stuff like that, I was a bean counter once. I worked in accounting for seven years. I kept our books here in the early days of this church, so I feel strangely affirmed by Paul here in verse 7. Why? Because he borrows some terms from the world of accounting to make his point. Do you see them? Do you see the words profit and loss? Oh, yes, fellow accountants, this is glorious. This is the gospel in the form of a P&L statement. You should be proud. Picture in your mind a ledger with two columns. You see the left column is marked profit and the right column is marked loss. Now Paul's not presenting a financial P&L here. What's he doing? He's presenting a spiritual profit and loss statement. The entries in each column are not financial figures. They're religious credits and debits. Now, here's what he's saying. All of my life, up until that moment on the Damascus Road, I viewed myself as piling up religious credits in the profit column of my life that I believed would impress God enough that he would be proud of me and let me into heaven. Some of those credits I received just from being born into the family that I was born into. I got them from my parents. Inherited advantages, like... My faithful parents, my race of being an Israelite, my circumcision, my religious upbringing in my family, my ancestry. He's saying, I always thought of these things as great profit to me, assets that would enable me to gain favor with God. And then I worked my tail off to add to those things my own religious achievements, like my training as a Pharisee, my elite status as one of the cream of the crop, my passionate devotion to God, my conscientious law-keeping. But here's the mind shift that Jesus prompted in Paul. What was to my profit, I now consider, regard, count as loss for the sake of Christ. Church, this is always what happens in every true conversion to Christ. This is repentance. Listen, you got to get this. The things you were relying on to make you acceptable to God, your spiritual assets, get moved over to the liability column. Why? Because you realize that trusting in all of those things was what kept you from trusting solely in the work of Christ. Does this make sense? This is one reason why one kind of evangelism training teaches us to ask people this question, and I've asked it hundreds of times over the years. Hey, fella, let me ask you a question. 
If you were to die tonight and all of a sudden be standing before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? Now that's not the whole gospel, but that's not a bad question because it pinpoints what people are relying on, what they are trusting in to gain entrance into heaven, to gain God's favor, to dwell with him forever. So if you were to die tonight, stand before God, he was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? Well, I, uh, well, I was born in a good family. My parents were religious people. They, they raised me in church. I mean, I learned Bible verses. I went to Sunday school. I got the little pins to prove that I was there. I was a pretty good kid growing up when I got into high school. I didn't do all the bad things that all the other kids were doing. I was part of youth group. I married a good person. I pay my taxes. I help old ladies across the street. I went to church. I tithe. I guess that's why you should let me in. Really. So your own achievements, basically. I wonder how many people, if they had to answer that question honestly, would say something like that. My stuff. Let's be careful to note that inherited advantages and spiritual accomplishments are not evil things in and of themselves. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. They're not. We rightly celebrate achievements in our world, don't we? They're only bad if you're trusting in them to earn God's love. If you're putting confidence in those things to gain God's favor and his acceptance and a spot in heaven. That's when those things that could be good things turn into evil things. When they become what you're piling up in your spiritual profit column. So Paul offers a challenge here, number two, point number two. It's a challenge to all of us, especially those who are raised in a religious environment. If you were raised to be religious, consider the merits of trading in your religion in exchange for a deeply satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you know what? You can't have both. It's one or the other. You see, God sets the terms on this. You can't be banking on all of your own religious accomplishments to give you a relationship with Christ because it doesn't work that way. Paul said, I I decided I wanted Christ and I realized I had to jettison all the things that I'd been trusting and relying on to make me right with God. Look carefully at what Paul says next, verse 8. What is more? I consider, what's the next word? Everything. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So let's bring that ledger page back up on screen again. We saw that the point of his conversion years earlier, Paul had a major mind shift, didn't he? And he shifted over to the lost column. All of those inherited advantages and all of those religious accomplishments that he'd been trusting in for so long to make him right with God. But see, now he's speaking present tense 
and he's describing the current mind shift that's still going on in his mind and in his life, even as he's dictating this letter. He summarizes his own spiritual growth into maturity by adding one more thing to the loss column. And what is it? It's everything. Everything? Seriously, Paul? You're now regarding, counting everything as loss, as liability? Yep. Everything. You know, in one sense, this is spiritual growth. This is sanctification. What Paul's saying here does represent what it means to grow in godliness. You say, what do you mean? Progressively coming in your life to see everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. That's what my life's been about. I suspect it's what your life has been about as well. In fact, it's God's mercy to progressively show us throughout the course of our lives that every other thing in life that we might be inclined to chase after, the ultimate experience, the ultimate thrill, in the end fails to compare to the wonder and joy of a close, personal, enduring, unending, unconditional love relationship with God the Son, Jesus Christ. So every time you hear about yet another famous celebrity taking their own life or ODing on drugs or divorcing their fourth wife or still, even though they've got a gazillion dollars in the bank, still chasing after some elusive thrill or experience. Or when you hear about the lottery winner, like I read about this week, who now wishes they'd never bought that winning ticket because of how it adversely impacted and affected their life and relationships, just realize it's God's mercy in showing us that while momentary pleasures do abound in this world, the ultimate experience of pleasure is only found in knowing Christ. You see, not only does religion fail to satisfy the soul, Paul here declares that in his experience, nothing in all the world can offer what Christ gives to his dear, beloved people. That's the gospel truth. And so not only can we say Jesus is better than religion, we can say, in fact, Jesus is better than everything. <laughs> everything. Man, are you there yet? At least in your mind are you there. You say, that my experience isn't bearing that out yet. But, but in your mind are you there? This is where God had gotten Paul to in his life. Paul wasn't chasing after anything other than a closer, fuller, deeper relationship with Jesus Compared to that, to him, everything else paled in comparison. In fact, he switches metaphors to make his point. He goes from talking about a ledger sheet to talking about a dumpster. Compared to knowing Christ, Paul actually now considered everything else to be rubbish, trash, refuse. In fact, the original word, you don't want to know what it is. The, to Paul now, the best experience of the flesh was just smelly garbage compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Wow. So let's go back to the ledger now. You'll notice what Paul had now come to regard as profit, as true assets. Remember, that column got opened up after his conversion since he had shifted everything else to the lost column, but now he begins to express what he has gained 
since that moment on that road that day, knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ, having Christ's righteousness. Do you see a theme here? (laughs) Christ. I've lost it all to gain Christ. Notice he says, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Do you see that? Did you know that's true Christianity? That's true Christianity. Religion just exhausts you by demanding that you earn your own righteousness by trying to be good and hoping for the best. But my question is, how good do you have to be? How good do you have to be to earn God's favor? The Bible teaches that the only righteousness that our holy God accepts is the perfect record of his own sinless son, and he's made that available as a gift to all who believe in Christ. Are you guys listening to me? Did you all fall asleep? (laughs) Wake up! (laughs) This is great news. This is why we call it amazing grace. The perfect record of Jesus given as a gift to those who believe in Christ, putting all of their own religious accomplishments in the lost column to gain Christ. There's even more that Paul now puts in his prophet column. Look at verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, he says. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So in addition, Paul now adds to his asset column other things. Desire for Christ, the power of Christ, partnership in the presence of Christ, the privilege of suffering for Christ. Man, this guy, I mean, he wanted to suffer and die like Jesus had. Why? Well, we've learned already, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul was like, man, if I could just die for Jesus, that would usher me right into his presence. I'd be with my Lord, my Savior, the one I love, the one I long for. Complete union with Christ, even in his death. And then the promise of resurrection to be with Christ. Paul was telling his beloved Philippian church, I decided to give all this other stuff up to regard it as loss and rubbish because it does not compare to the awesomeness of gaining all of these things that I now have in Jesus Christ. I think he was saying, I'd gladly do it again. I'd trade it all again because Jesus is better. This is a a trade-off worth making like the guy who decided to sell all that he had to obtain the treasure that was buried in the field, and like Jesus who said, lose your life in order to find real life. So what Paul has described for us is a huge mind shift, isn't it? Can you get your mind around this? Let me see if I can break it down as I wrap up this morning so it's clear to you. It's the mind shift from having confidence in the flesh to having confidence in Christ. It's the mind shift from having your identity anchored in your own family, in your parents, in your upbringing, or your own achievements, to having your identity anchored in your position in Christ. It's the mind shift from treasuring other things to treasuring Christ above everything else, from striving for a law-based righteousness that you have to earn to receiving a grace-based righteousness that you receive as a gift. It is the mind shift from being religious 
to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do, you, how do you build that relationship, by the way? I mean, in some ways it's similar to building relationships on this earth, right? Spending time together. I mean, if you talk to Christ today, did, did you talk to Christ this morning? Did you? I mean, in one sense it's as simple as letting Christ speak to you through his word and you speaking back to him through prayer and this rhythm of communing with your Lord. It's a relationship. It's knowing Christ, not knowing about Christ, not knowing of Christ, not knowing facts about him. It's knowing him. Like I know my wife. That's what it's talking about. That's so different than religion, friends. It's so different than religion. Religion puts you on the performance treadmill, always striving, always having to try to be good enough for God and for his religious people. And grace just... And you know what? Some people think this, well, if it's all grace, then aren't I just free to go out and sin up a storm? I mean, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, it's a great match. (laughs) And my answer to that is, may it never be so. It's not that you, excuse me, it's not that you stop obeying Christ It's not that you never do anything for the Lord. It's that the reason what's underneath it is different. It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. Because you love Christ. He loves you, right? You've embraced that. You sense his love, and you want to give your life back to him. And so his commands are not burdensome, like John wrote. It's a delight to obey Christ. That's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant where you're grinding out obedience every day and you didn't have the Holy Spirit and you bring these sacrifices, endless sacrifices, day in, day out, and we say, thank God it is finished. Jesus was the Lamb of God who gave himself for us, shed his blood, and now we serve him and obey him and love him and bow our knee to him because we want to. Man, that's different. It's different. It's just different, I'm telling you. And so maybe today you're ready to trade in your religion for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a trade-off worth making. And hundreds of people, hundreds of people have. I have a friend who for many years thought she was a Christian. She was raised in a Christian family. Her parents gave her every spiritual advantage growing up. She was raised in church. She went to Sunday school every week. She has a little pin to prove it. And the certificate that says, I went to VBS and even prayed a prayer at VBS. She got into her teen years. She tried to walk that straight and narrow, and she didn't do some of the other activities that a lot of her friends and other girls at school were doing. She tried to be a good person. She thought she was a Christian. Somehow in her early 20s, God, in his mercy, opened her eyes to the fact that while she had been very religious, she did not have a relationship with Jesus. She didn't know it. And God had mercy on her. And in her early 20s, she said, you know what? I'm trading in all that stuff. I'm putting it now in the liability column so that I can gain a relationship with Christ. And she became a genuine Christian in her early 20s after thinking she had been one for many, many, many years. Anybody relate to that? That's some of your story some of your story. 
And may the Lord grant all of us today a new mindset that says Jesus is better than anything, and I want Jesus more than anything else. Anything else. It's really the mind shift that's expressed in the words of, of an old song. If you ever watch an old um, Billy Graham crusade, you'll see George Beverly Shea often singing this song from years gone by. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'm wondering how many of you would say, when I hear Paul's story of migrating from religion to relationship with Christ, that's really my story. That, that parallels my own story as God has been helping me extricate myself from my legalistic religious upbringing so that through Christ I'm learning to enjoy a relationship with him. How many of you say that's that parallels my own story. Can I see your hands? Yeah, a number of us. Well, praise God for that. It's a huge mind shift. Would you pray with me? I need to ask this question. How many of you would say, you know what, Steve? This message today was for me. I, I needed to hear this. Can I see your hands? This message was for me. I needed to hear this. Many, many hands. You can put your hands down. Some of you, I know, are struggling with this. And I've talked to people who struggle with this idea of you know, leaving behind religion because in their minds they feel like they're somehow repudiating their parents or their grandparents or their first pastor. And they think, well, you know, it just doesn't feel right that if I leave all that, I, I feel like I would be saying bad things about those people. And I, I, wanna, I so want to encourage you to separate those things. Can you separate in your mind the people who loved you and, and taught you, you know, what they'd been taught? Can you separate that from the belief system that will keep you far from Christ? I guess what I'm saying is you can repudiate the system without repudiating the people. They were likely brought up in it as well. And if you're struggling with this, I just want to encourage you. Just will you talk to someone about it? Maybe in your small groups this week, maybe even this morning, pull someone aside. Maybe you come and talk to one of our prayer partners and say, I'm just really struggling with this idea of casting aside my religious upbringing in order to embrace a relationship with Jesus. Something about it feels not right. Talk with someone about that. Let someone pray over you. And so, Father, I thank you for these moments in your word this morning. I hope and pray the Holy Spirit has been free to do his work of applying this message to each of our lives. Lord, there may be people here today who don't truly have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, how I hope that before they leave, this transaction will take place in their heart, Lord, of trading their religion, trading their human efforts, trading, trying to be good enough, for what you have done for them through Jesus Christ. We sang about it earlier, Lord, the blood, the blood of Christ is the only thing that can wash away our sins.
Be gracious to people this morning, Lord. Give them repentance and faith so they can believe the good news of the gospel that it's not by our works, but why, why Jesus has done for us. We respond to you now in worship and in a few moments in giving. Lord, in praying for one another, for our prayer partners here, we pray you administer to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and uh, if you'd like to be prayed with by one of these folks, they'd love the opportunity to pray with you about anything that's on your heart. Let's worship together.